We're going to look at this psalm. We'll sing part of it in, in the middle of it. It's one of the songs, poems of the Bible you find on page 563. I'll read it in a moment, but first of all, I want to show you a verse from Philippians 4, verse 11, where Paul says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. If I ask you just a very simple question, are you content? I wonder how you could honestly answer. We live in a society that's full of worry and angst. There's always something that we need. There's a relationship that's going wrong. There's a relationship that could go wrong. There is just a a sense very often that we have that even when things are going right, uh, very soon they'll start going wrong. And I suspect that even when we do feel content, it's a relatively limited contentment, the kind of contentment that you have after you've had a really good meal and you feel full and you feel content. But within, if you're a teenage boy, within an hour, you're going to be hungry again (laughs) if you're a bit older, maybe not, maybe a bit longer. But I do think that we really struggle with this whole idea of contentment. And this psalm, Psalm 37, I think, tells us the secret that Paul is speaking of, the secret of being content. Now, I want also to say, as a kind of introduction, to tell you about somebody. Some of you will know his name, and some of you may know the story. But I I think it's important because um, it's an example of where we should be trying to be. Because I think for those of us who are Christians, to be honest, a lot of our Christian Christianity is quite weak and doesn't motivate us to action. But that wasn't true for David Livingston. David Livingston, in the 19th century, he grew up in a Christian home. Uh, age nine, he could recite all of Psalm 119, which I'm looking around here, and with possibly one exception, I'll bet none of you could uh, I couldn't, not Psalm 109, not the whole of that. Uh, I could probably do Psalm 131. Um, he sailed to Africa from Glasgow, and as he left, he read Psalm 121 and Psalm 135 to his parents. For 30 years he was in Africa. He explored, he drew up maps, he sought to abolish slavery, he brought medical aid, and he sought to bring the Christian gospel. He evangelized. Now, when you read his letters or you read any of his papers, one of the things that strikes you about him is this, that he faced constant tiredness, danger, constant criticism, extreme loneliness, and lack of supplies. Of course, the church now exalts David Livingston, but the church then was very reluctant to recognize what he was doing. And I quote his story because Psalm 37 and verse 5 was his constant refrain. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will do this. His last expedition was to, and forgive my pronunciation, uh, Lake Tanyanyaka. I'll have to ask Morag Miller about this. Tanyike. Tanyanyike. Okay, thank you, Margaret. In Malawi, where the capital is still named after him. 
And I didn't realize this until I read this this week, that on May the 1st, 1873, he was found dead on his knees, hands clasped in prayer before an open Bible opened at the psalm. I think that if you're, if you're not a Christian here and you, you think that I'm going to tell you that becoming a Christian is the answer to all your worries and you'll never have any more concerns, the first part may be right. The second part is not right. We constantly face battles and discouragement and so on. And I believe that one of the weaknesses in the church in Scotland today is simply that we are bringing up our Christian young people to believe that everything is always going to be okay. And when things are not okay in one particular church, they just move somewhere else where they get a buzz with that or they get a buzz with that. And quite often, in fact, I increasingly come across people who have become so disillusioned with the Christian faith because it hasn't been what they were promised. Now, I think what they were promised was wrong. <coughs> I think the Christian faith is much, much more than that. But uh, that's why we look at this psalm, and uh, we'll see how we get on with it. It is um, what's called an acrostic psalm. It contains each verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's a, a song that contrasts the life of the righteous, that's those who seek to follow God, and the life of the practical, functional atheist. Not necessarily someone who <coughs> says they don't believe in God, but somebody who lives as if there were no God. There are four sections in it. If you've uh, got your Bibles open, you'll see verse 1 obviously begins, do not fret. But then the, the remaining three sections all begin with the wicked. Verse 12, the wicked plot against the righteous. Verse 21, the wicked borrow. And verse 32, the wicked lie. So we'll begin by looking at the first section which I'm entitling The Problem and the Answer, verses 1 to 11. The words are up on the screen. Do not fret because of evil men, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their evil schemes, <clears throat> or their wicked schemes rather. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil, for evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they'll not be found but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. Why do we worry? <coughs> Why do we fret? Well, I like alliteration. I think in the verses, these verses, we have three things. There's an, a kind of agitation that people have, verse 7, um, verse 1, and verse 9. There's a... a Fret's a great word. There's a concern. There's an anger also. In verse 8, it's very, very easy. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. It's very easy to be worried and for that worry to turn into anger. And whilst there is a righteous and a good anger, there's an anger that gets deeply embedded within our souls, which becomes a bitterness, which means that we are angry about everything. We are angry people. And that, in turn, I think, leads to anxiety, that we are just constantly people who worry. If you want 
And it's really, really hard to deal with anybody who's like this. And some of you are like this, and I get like this sometimes. You can always think of something more to worry about. I remember Clement Graham, who's the principal in the Free Church College, telling us about illustrations in a sermon. He says, you should be really careful about your illustrations, because sometimes people think about them. And he was talking about worry, and he said he'd, he'd been speaking about the Holy Spirit and about how, about how the Holy Spirit was like antifreeze in your tractor. It was in a farming community. And he said, you know, you need the antifreeze in your tractor or in your car to stop freezing up. And he was trying to illustrate the Holy Spirit. And he gave this farmer a lift back uh, after the church service. And he asked, um, what did you think of the sermon? And he says, I, I don't know. He said, I didn't hear anything about it. I was too busy worrying about the antifreeze I hadn't put in my tractor, whether I'd put it there or not. Your, your holiday can be spoiled. I remember as a child setting off on holiday and being 100 miles from home and my dad's thinking, have I locked the door? And whatever happened, we would have to turn back because two weeks of worrying had the door actually been locked or not. There's, there are some of you who can identify with that one as well. But I think here there's a much, much deeper worry involved. It's in verse 11. We're saying, do the meek really inherit the earth? Does Christianity really work? Does God really provide? It looks as though everything is going against me. Why am I so ill? Why, um, when I'm trying to do what, what God wants, does it appear as though things are so against? Why do the things that are in the Bible, when I read and I hear, and I hear other Christians standing up and giving testimony, why doesn't that happen to me? Why is that always happening to other people? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with the Bible? What's wrong with God? What's wrong with life? And so we, we worry and we are anxious. And it's far too easy for someone to turn around and say, don't worry, just get on with life. To have the fatalistic, stoical attitude, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. It's far too easy for someone for whom life is going very well to just turn around and say, well, don't worry, everything will turn out all right in the end. It's far too easy to have a disney view of life that refuses to recognize the evil and the injustice and the wrongs that are in the world. So I think it is understandable, <coughs> it is natural, it is legitimate for us to be concerned about many things. What's the answer then to that? It's not, and forgive me not singing this, Bob Marley's don't worry about a thing because every little thing is going to be all right. I think the answer is in this, that we are to know who we are and we are to know who God has called us to be. I just want to go through these verses and give you some indication of what that is, and we're not going to be able to go into it in, in any particular depth. But verse 1, for example, do not fret. I'm, I'm going to again give all words beginning with the same thing. I think this is God saying to us, chill. Just calm down. Stop that focus which is so focused on yourself that you cannot see the bigger picture. That we need, we do actually need to learn to chill. We need to learn to relax. We need to learn to be still and know that I am God, which is not um, a command for inactivity. It is a command for us to stop running things around in our head as though by worrying 
we could make them better, as though by worrying we could make ourselves taller, as though by worrying we could make ourselves better, as though by thinking about evil all the time or whatever, we can negate it. There is a sense in which we must not fret because of evil men. Secondly, consider verse 2. <coughs> like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Verse 6, he will make your righteousness shine like the dawn. Verse 9, for evil men will be cut off. We have to be still, to chill. We have to consider, to think, and to realize that God will bring justice. It's like um, <clears throat> men like Gaddafi or Ceausescu in Romania. I remember a very, very courageous preacher uh, when Ceausescu was at the height of his power, when the secret police were everywhere, who stood up and critiqued Ceausescu and said that he had no fear because God would bring justice, because Ceausescu would fall, and Gaddafi will fall, and all that is wrong and all that is evil in this world will be dealt with <coughs> because God will bring justice. Can I say that that is an important emphasis in Christianity that sometimes we miss out on? I uh, had a Muslim friend who said that he had stopped being a Christian, he'd become a Muslim, because the Christianity he was taught was one in which people were told to go around and be nice to everybody else, and everything would turn out okay in the end, and actually what he wanted was justice. And he said he thought that um, Allah was, uh, there was a concept of justice in Islam. Now, I would disagree with him, but I would say this, that in Christianity, too often, we do not take comfort from the fact that God will bring justice. And we are to consider and to think about that. Sometimes we worry because we think that no one is in control, or at least we are not in control, but God is. Contentment, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. God will, be ble God will bless. God will bring justice, but God will also bless. These are desires that are turned into prayers. There's a contentment that comes from delighting ourselves in God. Now, here's the paradox. For those of you who use Christianity or use the Bible or use Jesus in order to get contentment, you'll never get it because your delight is not in God. Your delight is in the things that you think bring you contentment. It's a, uh, an experience in my life I had once where one summer we had a fantastic time and there was just so much we delighted in God, and we loved to pray, and we had tremendous feelings every time we met together, and we could have prayed all night, and sometimes did. And then the following year, a group of us met together to do exactly the same thing. But the trouble was, we wanted the feelings that we had the previous year. We wanted the experiences that we had the previous year. But we could hardly pray past 10 minutes. Why? Because our delight was in ourselves and in our feelings, and our delight was not in the Lord. And I think that's a really tough thing for those of us who are Christians, again, to simply ask, where is our delight? Where is our joy? I mean, it was a beautiful day again today. It's, uh, I'm, I'm tempted to say, um, 
And because I'm a Calvinist and not a fatalist, I think I should go ahead and say it, that uh, um, uh, winter is over and spring is here. Um, uh, somebody would say, well, you should have done touch wood or something because now look what's going to happen. You've cursed it. It'll be a bad week. That's not how it works. But, I'm, but because we've had this beautiful day yesterday and another beautiful day today, I, you, you can see that, it, doesn't it? It lifts people's spirits that uh, the weather's quite nice. It's quite nice to have sunshine and a relative degree of warm. And if you're from another country, uh, further south of here, not England, but even further south than that, and you're thinking, warm? You call this warm? Yes, it is. This is warm for us anyway. But you think about what it does bring you joy, and that's great, and that's fantastic. But I think what the psalmist is saying is that that sunshine, if you like, of God's love should be something that we delight in continually and that warms us even on the coldest days. There's a contentment that God will bless. Verse 5, there's a commitment. Commit your way to the Lord. God will do this. Commit your way. Trust in Him, and He will do it. It's interesting, the word for commit there is, is a word that means reveal. Now, God knows our way, but it's really saying just pour out your heart before God. Show your way to God. Not in the sense of coming to God and saying, this is my heart, and I want this, and I demand this. You're just saying to God, this is where I'm at. I'm confused, I'm hurt, I'm wounded, I'm battered, but I'm committing it all to you, everything to you, every sorrow, every wound, every tear, every desire, I'm committing it all to you. Why? Because I trust you that you will do it. I trust you that you will bring it about. And that's why verse 7, you get the, <coughs> the calmness where it says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. God will come. John Bunyan put it this way, passion has its good things first, and they are soon over. Patience has its good things last, and they last forever. We live in a society which tells us, go for it, get it, grab it, feel it, do it, but it doesn't last. In the biblical worldview, we're told to be patient. Be patient. Seek God and it will last forever. And then verses 10 and 11, confidence. Everything will be put to right. The wicked are transient. The meek may be at the bottom of the pile. You may be despised. You may be ignored. You may be the oppressed. You may be the poor. But trust God who will sort that and deal with it all. So we can have that confidence that even when things are not great, even when we are not doing all that well, even when everything's not working out, because our delight is in the Lord, because we're waiting for God, because God is who He is, because God is justice, because God is love, because God is mercy, that we can trust Him and know that things will work out.